We've just heard Michelle read Genesis chapters 18 and 19. This dark and mysterious account of a particularly intense 24-hour period in the life of Abraham. No other 24-hour period in his life is described with the detail of this period. A midday lunch with three visitors that ends with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah early the next morning. And through all of this high drama, we see something about the nature of God and the nature of his expectations of us. Last week we looked at the lunch. This week we pick up with the conversation that occurred as the guests are leaving. We'll start in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 18. We'll go through to the end of chapter 19 and come back up and pick up the conversation at the dinner table just as lunch is ending. There's so much that can be said. Um, But I think this morning we need to hear a word about prayer, a word about judgment, and a word about salvation. First of all, prayer. In Genesis chapter 18, God and two angels visit Abraham in the heat of the day. God greets them. Abraham greets these visitors and he provides them a lavish feast. There's a remarkable after-dinner conversation. And then Abraham accompanies the visitors as they depart for Sodom. Look at Genesis 18 verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near. And he prayed. He prayed for Sodom. And in this conversation between Abraham and God, we see not only a remarkable intimacy, we also see that Abraham's relationship with the Creator is the source of blessing for others. Abraham's relationship with the Creator is a source of blessing for others. In fact, when Sodom is burning, Lot is rescued because look what it says in chapter 19, verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now, way back in Genesis chapter 12, the reason the creator God called Abraham in the first place was to undo the sin of Adam and its effect on creation. And we've seen throughout this sermon series, we're halfway through this morning, the sermon series on Abraham's life. We've seen throughout it that, God, that through Abraham, God is getting the human project back on track And through Abraham, God is responding to evil. He's conquering evil. And a key way that God is conquering evil is through prayer. Through Abraham's prayer. 
Abraham wasn't chosen and blessed by the creator for his sake alone. Abraham wasn't given these extravagant promises, all of these graces. He wasn't rescued out of a vicious idolatry. He wasn't given all of this goodness for his sake alone. Now, it's definitely for his sake. It's good for him. But it wasn't only for that. It says very clearly right at the beginning so that others will be blessed, so that God's blessing will flow to others. Abraham and us. Christians, we are not blessed with forgiveness and adoption into the family of God and the indwelling of God's spirit for our sake alone. God is doing something. He's forming Abraham here. God, right, he deliberates. Should I let Abraham in on this? And he decides to let Abraham in on it because Abraham needs to get into this situation so that he can be formed as a person of prayer, which is a key role in Abraham's work as a conduit of blessing to the world. God is teaching Abraham and he's teaching us that we can and we must pray. And that prayer is a primary way in which God works in our world. Our government sends in tanks. Our God sends in his children who pray. Do you believe in prayer as much as you believe in your own power to affect situations? Prayer is partnership with God. Intercession matters. And here we see that the foundation of prayer is that God is not deaf. He listens and he acts. And he yields to our petitions. And he changes his intentions in response to our prayer. This is not a sign of weakness on God's part. No, God himself in the glory of his majesty and power has chosen and willed to work through our prayers. Just like with Abraham here, with you, God opens himself to you. He bids you to stand before him and pray. Now for Abraham, in this particular instance, to not pray is to ignore God, right? It starts with God saying, will I bring Abraham into this? And then God lets the angels go on and he stands there. And in that moment, Abraham has a choice. Will he ignore God and not pray, thy will be done, you'll do whatever you want anyway? Or does he accept the invitation and enter the dangerous ground of standing, not kneeling, but standing before the Almighty and making a case? For Abraham to not pray is to ignore God. And it is the same with us. After the sermon, when the whole congregation stands, in that moment, to not pray is to ignore the Almighty who has called us together to labor with Him for the life of the world. And the chief way we labor is through our prayers. Worship. We have work to do in worship. It's not just about receiving forgiveness of sins and adoring Him in our songs. It is about standing with humble boldness and entering the treacherous territory of intercession. We pray because God has called us here. So we pray. And because God acts differently, if we don't pray, we pray harder. See, if you don't believe that, 
If you don't really believe that God will act differently if you don't pray, then prayer is pro forma. It's merely for the formality. But when you and all of your guts know whether you can calculate it in your mind or not, how this works, how it, how it lines up with God being sovereign and the world moving on, whether you can understand the calculus or not, if you do not believe that God acts differently if you don't pray, then you will not pray. And notice how we pray. In this remarkable conversation between Abraham and God, we see that prayer requires both utter humility and shocking boldness. Do you see, Abraham, aware that when God is in the valley, it is not safe? And yet standing in boldness and praying. Parents, you know what this is about. You know what it's like for your child to come to you boldly but humbly. Parents, go to God the way you want your children to come to you. With profound humbleness but courage. That's prayer. That's intercession. Did you notice that when he prays, he's not tagging at the end of every line, if it be your will, if it be your will, and then walking off. He's he's contending. He's arguing. This is a lawyer in court before a judge who holds the power to place the lawyer in contempt, but still pushing the case as far as he can. This is something that comes up time and time again throughout the Bible. God himself prompts us to meet him with a humble boldness. And as the story of the Bible unfolds, we see this more and more and more. That there is a kind of humility that grows out of accepting who we are in Christ before God. Not approaching God on on the strength of our own good intentions, but approaching him because he has summoned us. To approach him. We see that when we intercede. This is part of what it means to be human. This is part of what it means to be genuinely human. Remember I've said throughout the series. Abraham is the new Adam. God is calling Abraham to be Adam again. To once again act as a true human. The last time God walked with man was in the garden. This is the only time since then this has occurred. And what does that mean? It means that here we see a true human, genuine humanity. is to rise up as stewards of creation, stewards of business and, and aesthetics and, and psychology and homemaking and math and education in every sphere of this world, rising up in our vocations and standing before God and acting As those who are made in the image of God, who alone can intercede and doing our job. Now there are all kinds of ways for us to embrace this. But let me apply this to three areas. To parents, to work, and to students. First of all, to parents. Parents, do you want your family to be a little outpost of the new creation? Do you want your home to be a new Eden? Then you've got to stand before God as an Adam and an Eve. And pray, pray diligently for God's spirit to indwell every member of your house. Pray that God's spirit will work to conform every member of your family to the image of Christ. Pray for God's spirit to bind you. Husbands, pray for God's spirit to bind you to your wife. 
Wives, pray for God's Spirit to bind you to your husbands. Pray for God to bind you to your children. And, and you've got to pray that God would bind your children to one another. Pray that the Spirit of God will work within your house to form a bond of peace. Pray that, God, that the Spirit of God will make your home a garden where the fruits of the Spirit are abundant. This is what it means to be parents who are truly human. And those of you who work, your vocation, your mission is your daily calling to join with God in the renewal of all things to rescue this world from the sea of chaos and blight in whatever vocation God has called you to. When we go to work, we go forth by obedience to God to draw the world into the peace and the flourishing and the justice and the righteousness and the beauty and the wholeness accomplished by Christ in his life and death and resurrection. There is no sacred secular divide. We're all full-time ministers in God's kingdom. My sphere is the church. Janelle's sphere is the home. Barbara's fear is bookkeeping and things like that. Numbers, they get real fuzzy for me. We need to pray. We need pray for your office, for your clients, for your jobs, for your colleagues, professors. Do you pray for your students? Because I really don't know what it means to be a Christian who's a professor who doesn't pray. Because there is no sacred secular divide, professors. That's a holy calling. And your greatest tool is that you're a child of the King, filled with the Spirit, who stands before the one who will act differently if you pray. Pray because when you stand before God and make the case, He listens, and that is your calling. Now, students, are you standing before God with regard to your studies? When you don't get it, do you pray? When I'm stuck in studying scripture, I pray. I've got a candle in my office. I light it. I remind myself I'm in the presence of a holy God. And I beg him to open the thick fog of my mind to understand. Students, there is no different for me and you when you're reading and studying and you just don't get it. There is a God and for him all truth is his truth. He knows it better than you. Students, prayer is your greatest tool. It doesn't stop you from doing other things, but you've got to pray. And you've got to pray for your, uh, your classmates. And you need to pray for your professors. You need to hold them before God. That they would teach in line with the grain of the universe and teach well. And are you praying for your parents? And are you praying for your dorm? All of us, we have to pray. This is what it means to be genuinely human. And when we pray, we've got to pray in faith. We've got to pray believing that the Father is kind and He's good and He knows how to give good gifts. And don't pray doubting that God will answer your prayers. That's unbelief. If you're praying in unbelief, stop praying. Ask forgiveness. And then get back to it believing. Humble, bold, intercession that makes the case this is something that God is teaching Abraham and through Abraham he's teaching us and we see that this is how God is forming Abraham 
Now, a word about judgment. First of all, in this story, we see that Sodom is more wicked than Abraham knew. There wasn't even ten. A key verse here is verse 4. Genesis 19 verse 4. But before they lay down the men of the city, the men of Sodom, in case you haven't gotten it yet, both young and old, in case you still don't get the picture, the people to the last man. Do you feel what the author's trying to do? He's, <laughs> this is a pervasive, ubiquitous evil. They surrounded the house and they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. It's interesting. It's the same word where it says back in Genesis 18 verse 17, God chose Abraham. It's a word. It, it's literally God knew Abraham. It's a perversion. Bring them out so that we can rape them. The sin of Sodom is heinous, moral, and social corruption. It's an arrogant disregard of basic human rights. A cynical insensitivity to the suffering of others. The prophet Jeremiah identified Sodom with adultery and false dealings and the encouragement of evil doing. All without any remorse. The prophet Ezekiel teaches us that Sodom was filled with arrogance and a refusal to support the poor and the needy and a prideful disdaining of God. Now, I've got to be honest with you. It's very interesting to talk like this in our society. To use this kind of language to talk about evil. Because on the one hand, we've got modernity with its idea that original sin is something out of mythology. And in the place of original sin, modernity offers the explanatory systems of Marx, who says it's really all about money. Or Freud, who says the root issue is not original sin, it's sex. Or, Or Nietzsche, who says the real issue is the abuse of power. Modernism would have us to believe that the world is basically a good place and its problems can be solved with technology and education and in some forms of modernity with democracy. What the the violent Middle East needs is a a democracy. What poverty in India needs is education. What violence in South America needs is Marxism. All of these, there's this idea... That we can put our faith not in God, but in progress. If they could just get an education. If we could just get them iPads. If they could actually vote instead of having a dictatorship. And when we get used to imagining that all the serious issues can be settled by a roundtable discussion, acts of radical evil take us by surprise. And we don't know what to do with them. And then we've got post-modernity, which thankfully has come along and deconstructed all that bunk. But it's deconstructed this dangerous ideology of progress. Post-modernism has reasserted what Christians identify as a doctrine of the fall. This idea, this truth of a deep and fatal flaw within human nature. So here's a push back on, on the modern arrogance that supposed it could solve the world's problems. 
But there's plenty wrong with postmodernism. Three things primarily. Number one, it's cynicism. Postmodernism ends with this despair that nothing will get better and there's nothing you can do about it. The masters of suspicion, Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx have come home to roost. This nihilistic idea that nothing matters anyway because the brokenness is so overwhelming. Number two, postmodernism is dehumanizing. There is no moral dignity left when there's nobody left to blame. We live in a culture so fixated on the psychology of the victim that everyone's become a victim and there's nobody left to carry responsibility. But human beings are, within reason and certain limits, responsible agents. And we must continue to regard one another as agents bearing responsibility for our actions. If we don't, we are dehumanizing our culture. Number three, the problem with postmodernity, the the way it's deeply flawed is that in postmodernism there is no redemption. It's all deconstruction. There's no way out, no chance of repentance and restoration, no way back. You can't escape language. You can't escape your victimhood. There's no way to the solid ground of truth from the quicksands of tribalism and relativism. Postmodernity is correct to say that evil is real and powerful and important, but it gives us no clue about the way forward. There is such a thing as evil. We can't explain away everything as simply ill-muddled or uneducated or misguided actions. There is a large and dark and powerful force in our world for which the only description of it is evil. And there is a God who is the judge of all the earth. Did you see that in chapter 18, verse 25, when Abraham is praying? He's appealing to the fact, and he says, you are the judge of all the earth. You know what that means? It means that all the inhabitants of the world are responsible to the one true God for their behavior. Now, this is a critical assumption behind the sad story of Sodom. Sodom was not a part of the chosen people. They weren't Israel. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. None of God's revelation that comes through the Bible had come to them. But there is a universal moral law. And God expects all humankind to follow it, no matter your religion or your ethnicity. There is a judge, a single judge of all the earth. And even when an entire society approves of something, that doesn't make it right. Do you know how disgusting it sounded for Lot to offer his daughters? Did you feel the weight of that? You know, distance is an interesting thing. Distance gives us perspective. We can look at that, right? Now, Lot was in a patriarchal culture where where the, the father's word was law and everybody was owned by him and way at the bottom were the daughters. Do you know that in the Canaanite culture, they would not have thought that was bad. Our distance from that gives us a tremendous perspective. Here's the problem. Sometimes your distance gives you the wrong perspective. 
You see, the reason that Lot thought that was okay was because he once lived with Abraham, but then he moved near Sodom, and then he moved in Sodom, and then he became a leader in Sodom. And as time went by, the plausibility structure of Sodom became his plausibility structure, and he suddenly saw there was nothing wrong with this. Is it possible for society to really believe slavery is okay? Is it possible for an entire society to evolve into a dead end? Third Reich? Is it possible that on critical moral issues, our society's plausibility structure is a dead end? Now, the only way you can say no to that is if you've got an arrogance that will make your head too big to fit through those double doors. Absolutely. So how do we know when our perspective is right and when it's wrong? How do we get out of the hermeneutical circle? Scripture. Now, if you don't want to say Scripture, what are you going to say? Scripture rightly interpreted Scripture. It is possible for an entire society to think that something is right and okay and good, but in the end, God will judge it with devastation. There's a fundamental standard for all people, and God is the author of that standard, and God distinguishes between those who follow His ways and those who don't. And for Sodom, as with everyone, we see that there is a time when the grace to repent comes to an end. That's the sad tragedy of Sodom. And we cannot choose the time and place where that occurs. Where the Lord's judgment will transform our lives. So in the story of Sodom, we see a paradigm for the way God judges sin. When people, when cities, when nations flout God's standards of human decency. And they spurn God's messengers. They cannot hope in the end to escape God's judgment. Now, we live at the end of several centuries of utilitarian thinking about justice and judgment and punishment that demands punishment is justified solely by its good results. Restorative justice. But there is a final judgment that falls on those who refuse to repent. And there is no other side of that judgment. There is no restoration on the other side of it. There is a judge of all the earth. Now listen, that is the orthodox, millennium long, four millennium long, Judeo-Christian perspective, the perspective of Islam, of all the world's major religions, Judaism, almost all of them. If you see it differently... Provide a better account. That's the challenge. But this is the Christian position. Now, lest we all despair over our own brokenness, and there's astonishing good news, and we see this good news vividly on display in the reprobate lot. This man who is inclined toward the right and the good But he constantly fails and falters. His life's a total wreck. But look at the mercy 
Look at the grace in Lot's life. Left to his own devices in chapter 13, he would have been a slave of the northern kings. In chapter 19, he would have been gang raped and murdered. In the first half of the chapter, in the second half, he would have remained in a city that was about to be a Pompeii. But time and time again, God in his mercy and through the work and ministry and prayer of Abraham, he rescues Lot. And we are no different. Left to our own devices, we would remain in our sinful habits. But fortunately, God does not leave us alone. Just like he didn't leave Lot alone. Reading through the book of Genesis, we see that in an act of sovereign grace, in a new way, God opens up the door to return to his original good purposes of blessing and goodness and flourishing and shalom for humankind and for all of creation. And over and over we read in the stories of Genesis, we see that the sovereign creator God will continue his work to make all things new until blessing ultimately, finally, completely replaces curse. Homecoming replaces exile. Olive branches appear after the flood and a new family is created in which the scattered languages can be reunited. The Christian belief is that the God who made the world remains passionately and compassionately involved in it and he will have the last word, not evil. Lot is indecisive. He's anxious, he's reluctant, he's slow to obey, he doesn't trust, he's selfish, he's fearful, he's faithless, he's faint-hearted. But time and time again, God's grace rescues Lot from utter destruction. Why? Because he's giving Lot a chance to repent and to learn to trust in God instead of himself. Having faith in God. Do you know what it means to have faith in God? It means to abandon hope in yourself. In your own abilities. Faith is hope against yourself. It's confidence in God's power to accomplish what you can't accomplish. Now let's wrap this thing up. Look back to the lunch Abraham provided for the three strangers in chapter 18. Just after the meal, there's a conversation. In Genesis 18 verses 9 through 15. God tells 89-year-old barren, postmenopausal Sarah, she's going to get pregnant and have a baby within a year. To which her response is what? Laughing, right? Because that's irrational. It's unbelievable. This is the laughter of disbelief. Just like Abraham did in chapter 17. At this point, Abraham and Sarah are not models of faith. They're models of disbelief. The powerful promises and the extravagant blessing of God outdistances their ability to receive it. Is that the case for you? Do you find it impossible to believe that God will forgive you for what you've done? Do you find it impossible to believe that there is a creator God who is the judge of all the world? But he loves you. 
and that he longs to be with you? Do you find it impossible to believe that this world will be healed? Is it impossible for you to believe in the new heavens and the new earth? That this place will be real and physical. That there will be relationships and business and art and food and dancing and drinking and government and politics and all of this stuff and architecture but without any residue of evil. Do you find that impossible to believe in in the radical new heavens and the new earth? Do you find it impossible to believe that God's all conquering love will one day really make this place Into a new creation in which the dark and threatening forces of evil are no more. If that's the case, then God is saying to you what he said to Sarah. Is God God? Is anything impossible with God? Can the world finally say no to its creator? Is there a limit on God? God's promise of a son to a 90-year-old Sarah is so impossible to believe that Sarah responds not with joy but with doubt. And so listen to God's response. Is anything too hard for me? Nothing exceeds God's power. Not a virgin birth and not a resurrection. Believe in God. Believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and that Jesus is the Lord of the world and that in him God is making all things new, including you. Do you find it impossible to believe that God's spirit will enable you to conquer your sin? Do you? God is making all things new, including you. And if you will trust in him, if you will abandon hope in yourself... And your own abilities and believe in the story the scripture tells us. The story of how God is dealing once and for all with evil. The story of God's work to conquer evil and to make all things new. Then you'll find rest for your soul. And you'll discover what is really true. Let's pray.